I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, there's a couple things that I want I want to try to share with you right off the bat here, and that's this: that um, some people think that what I'm doing right now is illegitimate in some sense. That the idea of finding Jesus in the Old Testament is somehow wrong because you're not just taking the meaning of the text, what it meant to the original audience at the original time when they originally heard it. Now, I've kind of already unpacked some reasons why, biblically, we should be doing this and why this is good hermeneutics, this is good Bible study. Um, But what we're going to do tonight to show you not just that there are types in the Old Testament of Jesus, but to show you how many and how pervasive and how many different kinds of ways God foreshadows Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to do a survey of a whole bunch of different New Testament types. Not going to get into a bunch of detail with them. It's more about quantity over quality this time around. Um, Sometimes, you know, we have the phrase, you can't see the forest through the trees. So you're there examining one tree, but you don't step back and look at the whole forest to realize how massive and beautiful this thing is. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to zoom out, and we're going to look at how massive and beautiful this thing is, this typology or foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament. Because um, we need this the road to Emmaus experience, right? How they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? Remember, they had the Bible all that time. They had the, the Hebrew Bible that whole time. And yet, when Jesus, after the fact, took them through the law, the prophets, the writings, and said, see how it testifies of me, they felt like he'd opened it to them all over again. And so that's kind of where we're going today. So here's a bunch of different types of different degrees, some stronger, some weaker, to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, And we're going to start, well, I'll, I'll just mention a couple I've already done. Can you guys remember some we've already done? Adam and Christ, we talked about that one originally, right? We talked about the bronze serpent how the bronze serpent was representative of Jesus. Uh, we talked about several other ones, but we're going to get into a bunch of new, fresh ones today. So John one fifty one, that's the first one we're going to look at. <clears throat> and here Jesus himself, he says, and uh, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you might be like, what? How is that an Old Testament type? Mike, well, you've got to remember who, we, who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jewish people, right? He's talking to people who know their Old Testament. And in Genesis 28, verse 12, we get the counterpart to what Jesus is saying. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This is Jacob's ladder. Jacob, he's wrestling with God, right? He sees the ladder. He's got these, all these different stories of him. Well, this, according to Jesus, is going to happen, but not, not a ladder, the Son of Man, the angels are ascending and descending on. Well, what would the ladder be? The ladder would be the access point between heaven and earth. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the access point between heaven and earth. He is the door. He is the shepherd. Right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. You have to enter through him. Like These are all kind of correlating things. So there's, there's Jesus himself giving this picture where he puts himself in the place of the ladder from uh, from the story of Genesis 28, 12. But let's move on to another one, because we're going to move pretty quick tonight, because I want to give you, like I said, quantity. Um, so Moses, Moses, according to the Bible, also is a type of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3, we read about this. 
Hebrews 3, 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Notice we also have him as the high priest, so we have a connection to the high priest in Jesus. Uh, we've talked about that before, though. Um, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much um, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Now, you might say, Mike, um, this is not a good example, right? Because, okay, Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. But Jesus is better. He gets more glory, just like the builder gets more glory than the house. So you might say, Mike, this isn't a type or a foreshadowing. This is just a comparison. But I have to say... Um, because of the significance of Jesus, when we see comparisons of Old Testament people to Jesus, we should recognize something. God had this planned out the whole time. That's what we've learned. In fact, that's what we learned day one in our study of Jesus in the Old Testament, is how this was like an intentional, purposeful, deliberate thing. Okay, did not God know about Hebrews chapter 3 when he had written Genesis chapter 1? Like, it didn't... Didn't he know about all of these things? This was all intended and orchestrated together. It's one big story. It's not just a, a, a convenient group of separate stories that happen to do good for us, right? This is a, a, there's a meta narrative. That's the big phrase for it. Big narrative that goes across the whole thing. Also, we have a prophecy from uh, the end of Deuteronomy where Moses says um, that God will raise up a prophet like unto Moses for the people, and this sort of hung on the shoulders of the Jewish people. There will be a prophet, and he'll be like Moses, and him we must hear. He'll be like Moses. And um, so Jesus ultimately is that. <clears throat> then we have another story from the Old Testament, the flood story. Did you know that the flood story is related to Christ in some way? Well, this is in 1 Peter chapter 3. So here's another type. Now, by the way, what you could do with this is you could, you could then go to Moses, and you could look at his life and go, I wonder if there's different ways in which Moses was like Jesus, other than being faithful in his house. I wonder what else we might find there. I think that's a legitimate thing to do. And we will be doing that later on. Um, so 1 Peter 3.20, it says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, i.e. water baptism is not what saves you, it's what? An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that thing baptism represents. Of course, that's, I have a whole debate on that online. <laughs> you can look up my baptism debate if you want. But, um, but here we have the, cor the correspondence between the flood, the ark, and then how they were saved through the flood, and how now we're saved through this thing that represents the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I find a correspondence between the flood story and salvation through Jesus represented modern times in baptism. I think that's really interesting. I wonder what else might there be in the flood story if I read it thoughtfully and carefully now, examining it for more typology of Christ based upon the fact that the New Testament seems to indicate it's there. But there's more. There's just like two more. So manna from heaven. In John 6.32, you, we all know the story about the manna, right? How this mysterious stuff was just settling down from the Lord that they would come and gather it and eat it and God provided for them for, for 40 years with this manna. They called it manna because manna means, what is it? What is it? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Right? Um, so, 
John 6.32, then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives. Notice Moses' past tense. It was not Moses who gave, past tense, the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus says that he's the bread. Jesus is the bread, but he doesn't just say, hey, I'm the bread of life. He, cor- he, he makes a correspondence between him and the manna, and he re- references himself as being the greater thing. And that's something else we learn from the types, right? That, um, that, that the type is usually lesser and Jesus is greater. Expect when you find a type of Christ in the Old Testament or a foreshadowing, expect it to fall short of Jesus. That's normal. That's expected. And it's intentional because God wants us to see that Jesus is greater than these things. And so um, Jesus is the true manna, not just a passing correspondence, right? So in order of appearance, manna first, Jesus second, right? In time, the timeline of, of history, manna came first, Jesus came second. But in order of importance, Jesus first, manna second. That's the point here. In order of importance, it's Christ that comes first. And the book of Hebrews really, really strikes this anvil like over and over again, that Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. It takes an Old Testament reality and says Jesus is better. Now at this point, I want to pause for a second. Um... When it comes to interpreting the Bible, um, I interpret the Bible, uh, you, you guys know, right? we're a verse-by-verse people. Like We like, man, give it to me in the text, in context, show me how you got that interpretation. Like this is, I love that. It excites me to be super faithful to the text of Scripture. But here's where someone will say, well, Mike, you're no longer taking these Old Testament passages just literally. You're looking at them literarily. And that might bother them because then they think, oh, you're just, you're reducing the, the Old Testament to allegory. But there's a difference between this and how, say, a, a liberal would do it. I don't mean liberal like Democrats here. I'm talking about theology, right? A, a theological liberal, they will reduce the Old Testament to allegory or to a literary work where the, where the original meaning no longer matters. Whereas uh, faithful biblical Christians we should say we take it in its literal sense and in its literary sense. Like, we don't use one to discount the other. We realize that God is giving us a complicated and beautiful literary work in the Bible. So, there really was manna. God really provided for the people of Israel. This was a miraculous work of God giving food to his people, and he, ha- he intended it to foreshadow Christ. It's both of those realities. And so for anybody who's, who's like, they're like going, wait, are you moving away from a, a simple, plain interpretation of the text? I'm saying no. I'm using the text to give me this fuller understanding of it that we get through Jesus, having the scriptures open to us, as they said on the road to Emmaus. <clears throat> so there's a danger is when the literary understandings are used to ignore the literal, plain meaning of the text. But there's another danger when we think, and this I've seen a lot, when we think that we protect people by not allowing them to see the symbolism, by not allowing them to see the literary allegorical type elements that are in the text. You don't protect people like this. You rob from them the meaning of the scriptures, I think. So I remember reading in the hermeneutics book, I told you this before, right? When I was in my school of ministry in the hermeneutics book, you know, the art and science of studying the Bible. That, that's, that's what hermeneutics is. So it's like how to study the Bible well. But they had this section on typology and they say, you can only call it a type if it's clearly identified in the text as a type. And I have a problem with this. 
because you think you're protecting me from coming up with my own wild, crazy theories about the Bible. Except that doesn't come from the scripture. You're strangling the scriptures from being able to have its full meaning. For instance, in Genesis 22, we read about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. How can you argue that this is not a type of Christ? Yet, is the New Te- does the New Testament identify it as a type? No. So this hermeneutic would say, I can't call that a type. And I would say, you're just wrong. <laughs> there is a literary work that's going on here that's meant to reveal Jesus. and So this is a good thing. And I think that as, as a, I think a lot of pastors in modern times either dabble recklessly in typology or they avoid it entirely. But very few teachers thoughtfully and seriously undergo a study of typology of Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's why I'm excited to do this. Because I know that even these videos get out to, to different pastors and leaders, and I'm hoping that they can take these things and just put them in your own messages, man. Don't give me credit. I don't care. Like, just, like I, do I really get the credit? Like, it's in the text of Scripture. That's the whole point. Let's just take all we can out of God's Word. So, um, so there is a New Testament precedence for this sort of thing, when Jesus takes the manna and relates it to himself. All right, just one more. The rock. <clears throat> the rock. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, 10.4, it says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, speaking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, what is this talking about? Okay, so they're wandering through the wilderness, and at one point, multiple points, right? They're, they're either starving, or they're dehydrated, they're out of water, and there's a lot of them, and they're like, we're going to die. Moses, you brought us out here to die. God brought us out here to kill us. It's not the best attitude to have. <laughs> when you're suffering. Uh, But that's what they did. And so Moses, he strikes a rock. This happens at Rephidim. Exodus 17, 6. He says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. This is actually what God tells Moses. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So there in one location, he strikes the rock, and there's water gushing out of it, and he you know, gives the people all these all this fresh water. And then later on at Kadesh in Numbers twenty eleven, it happens again. Different location, right? And Moses strikes the rock again. It says, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And so there was there was plenty of water. Now what's interesting, side note, right? Many of you know where I'm going already with this, right? Moses got in trouble for this. The second time he struck the rock, well, God actually specifically, if you read the passage in context, he told Moses the first time, strike the rock. The second time he says, speak to the rock. Really interesting, but Moses is mad. He's mad at the people because they're a bunch of poop faces. I mean, they are. Read the text. Like, they're really, I mean, they're really horrible individuals to lead. You guys are so much better than (laughs) than the Israelites. Um, So, he strikes the rock, maybe out of anger, wrath, and God's like, you did not honor me, you didn't glorify me when you did that. And you're like, and then God tells him, you do not get to enter the promised land. That's how big of a deal this is, Moses. You do not get to enter the promised land because you struck that rock and didn't hollow me or make me holy in the eyes of the Israelites. You're like, why was it such a big deal? And then we get to the New Testament. Remember how Jesus turns the question marks into exclamation points? The question mark, why Moses was he robbed from the promised land because he struck the rock twice? Well, because the rock represents Christ, and Jesus was struck once. After that, you just speak to him. (laughs) I just need you, Jesus. 
you died for me one time, once and for all, and I just need to come to you and speak to you for that water, that living water. So 1 Corinthians makes sense of this, and this is not my fabrication. These are all in the text of the New Testament. So the question then is, why does 1 Corinthians say that rock followed them? The rock followed them. How interesting. The rock followed them. Well, it also calls it a spiritual rock. They drank the same spiritual drink from this spiritual rock. It could be that he's saying the rock itself was spiritual and it was the same rock that somehow appeared in two locations. Or he could be saying, I'm spiritualizing the text. I'm showing you the spiritual thing God's communicating through the text. So spiritually, the water represents Jesus. Spiritually, the rock represents Christ. So this is typological language, calling it spiritually. Um, that is another possibility. So um, some of you guys, uh, you you are still not in alignment with my correct opinion about Melchizedek. Um, just um, maybe I'm right, but I think, obviously I think I'm right. Everybody thinks they're right, because if they think they're wrong, then they change their opinion, and then they think they're right again. So, of course, you think you're right. But, um, <clears throat> but Melchizedek, um, you say, well, it says, like, it basically says he was Jesus in the text. Like, how does it, but look at this here. It says that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. That rock was Christ. Well, was the rock literally Christ? Is that a theophany? No, I think it's a metaphor. I think, and that's, this is the terminology of metaphors. Metaphor is when you say just something, something is something, but you don't mean literally, you mean it metaphorically. And that's, I believe, it's okay for the text to speak that way, and that's why I can speak that way about Melchizedek as well. So, now you agree with me. Um, probably not. Okay, Jonah, let's look at one more. <clears throat> Last one. Jonah in Matthew 12, verse 39. But he answered them, Jesus speaking, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, Jonah is not identified as representing Jesus in any way, in any way, shape, or form. There's, and there's nothing obvious about it either. And here we come to, again, we're looking at the full understanding of the text of Scripture. I'm not saying Jonah was an obvious prophecy. I'm saying Jonah was a deliberate story meant to communicate something about Jesus. So the New Testament reveals Jonah is this. Jesus is not pulling things out of the air here. He's not looking at the Old Testament going, how can I find stuff about me in there? This was all intended from the beginning. When you're writing a book or a series of books and you have the whole story planned out ahead of time, you embed all sorts of stuff in the first book that you intend to use later on. It didn't mean much in the first book, but later on, boy, it has deep meaning. Look at the Lord of the Rings story, right? In the original Hobbit story, we read about Bilbo Baggins and how he stumbles upon this magical ring that turns him invisible. Yet later on, the, and, and the ring's mysterious, and it's got Gandalf's interest. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I get it. And, <clears throat> and the story ends, you know, he wears it, and nothing really big happens with the ring. You know, there's a little warning from Gandalf, and powerful rings are not to be, you know, meddled with Bilbo. <laughs> and then the next story comes along, and all of a sudden, that ring is the entire focus of the three-book trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. It was just in, it, Now, it was not obvious originally, but it was used by the author to tie the stories together to have a big epic 
adventure type story going on. And more so, God does this. But this is normal in, in, in works of liter- literature to do this sort of thing. And so God does this with the story of Jonah. Three days and three nights. Now here's something interesting. Here's how we can do typology. I go, wow, look, Jesus relates himself to Jonah. And he specifically relates the time Jonah was inside this fish for three days and nights to his time in the, tw- in the tomb, his death and resurrection. I wonder what would happen if I went to the story of Jonah and just read what Jonah said about his time inside that fish. Well, let's go there. That's Jonah chapter 2. Because I think Jesus is inviting us to follow his lead. In Jonah chapter 2, <coughs> we read this in verse 1. It's a short book in the Old Testament, so it's hard to find. All you can find is Psalms and Ezekiel, so good luck. So Jonah 2, 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you, but I'm going to offer you some typological understanding of it as well, at least that I think is there. Saying, <clears throat> I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, now, Sheol is a term either used for the grave or the place where people go when they die. It's used for multiple things, right? Hebrew words, actually the Hebrew vocabulary back then was a lot smaller. And so they would use one word for lots of different meanings. That's just what they would do. So the word Sheol meant either the grave or it means the place where you, like the physical grave or the place wherever you go when you die. But it's never used to refer to a fish. But it's interesting that he metaphorically calls himself in the belly of not a fish, but Sheol, the grave. And Jesus says he was in the belly of the fish, the son of the man will be in the heart of the earth. Well, um, really that relates, I think, to the death of Jesus Christ and his burial. So I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now in the Bible, floods and waves and billows are seen as, as judgment and tribulation and hardships of life. Like we know that psalm where he says, like, deep calls unto deep, and we hear it quoted in the song, and we're acting like it's the deep of my heart that calls out to the deep of the Lord. Actually, it's, it's, it's like one trial in life calls out to another trial in life. That's the actual meaning of the psalm. I'm sorry for ruining your worship songs, but that's what it means. And it's, it, The deep calling out to deep in the psalm there is actually talking about billows and waterfalls and terrible things happening to you is the idea. And so Jesus suffers, he goes down to she, to Sheol, he goes to the grave, and he suffers what? The judgment and the wrath for my sins. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Could not Jesus have said this? My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he knew that he would once again look upon, and it says your holy temple. Well, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. And Jesus died in order to make us that temple. So he will again, it was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. I think this is kind of interesting. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit O Lord, my God. And that phrase, the pit, is very regularly used in scripture to talk about death. Talk about death. A lot of people think Jonah actually died inside the fish because of this prayer. It sounds like he's saying, I died and you brought me back. 
So you might. So for those who were like, how could he survive inside the fish? Well, maybe he didn't. <laughs> it's possible he didn't. I mean, either way, God's obviously doing a miracle through this thing. Um, then in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I can't help but think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, weeping great drops uh, or sweating great drops of blood. And he's like, if there's any other way yet, nevertheless, let your will be done. He's going to vow, he's going to pay what he's vowed, what he's committed to come. And he's going to pay it. He's going to sacrifice himself. It's so interesting that he's like, there's a sacrifice. I mean, why is, why is Jonah talking about a sacrifice? He's been eaten by a fish for not going and speaking God's word to the Ninevites and, he speaks here at the end of, of paying what he's vowed and a sacrifice. And I think that this is, you could almost have the entire prayer of Jonah in the mouth of Jesus relating to the cross and his death and resurrection. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. And I didn't just make it up because Jesus is the one that kind of pointed us over there with his own words um, in Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Okay, one more. The cornerstone. Last one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Jesus is called the cornerstone. And I have to say, this one gets me very excited. Um, and I'm not going to unpack the entire thing because, again, we're going for quantity over quality today. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, 7, it says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and these are quotes because they're quotes of the Old Testament. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, this is actually from Psalm 118, which is a, a very messianic type psalm. And uh, I'll show you why in a second. But let me pause to point something out. Sometimes when you're looking at some of the, some of the verses people say are prophecy about Christ, you look at it and you go, that isn't clearly obviously about Jesus. Whereas some, some of it is. There is plenty that is clearly, obviously. But some of it, you're like, I don't know if I would use that when trying to convince someone that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. And I agree. I wouldn't use this to convince somebody. I would use this to help Christians appreciate what God has done in the scriptures. I would go to Isaiah 53. I would go to Psalm 22. I would go to Daniel 9. I would go to the passages I've done in my Evidence for the Bible series. I would go to those to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah. But once you've locked that in, you can then go to the rest and you can do what we're doing today. So when you hear him quote that he's the stone that the builders rejected and he's the chief cornerstone, and if it, what's in your mind is every verse has to prove the Bible true, well, then you've really limited the text of Scripture because it's only allowed to do one thing for you. You can't appreciate what God's written because your, your doubt has caused you to not be able to just read the text. Um, everything has to prove everything, right? You have to prove every fact of Scripture. Okay, all right, so you've proven that the, that the Bible was really written that way, but can you, can you prove there was a mountain right there in that exact spot at that time? And everything has to be proved every five seconds. Have you guys experienced this before? It's crippling doubt, and it's irrational doubt. It's doubt and to the point where you're not able to let people finish a sentence without interrupting them to, telling them, to tell them about everything that's wrong with the way they put the comma in the wrong place verbally. I don't know if that's possible. Okay, so Psalm 118. Back to the stone that the builders rejected. This is what First Peter is talking about. Psalm 118 in verse 22, 
This is the verse that's quoted. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This statement about the stone that the builders rejected, the builders, of, of course, are probably talking about the builders of the temple. And the story that Psalm 118 is seeming to communicate is this, this, this old traditional story that, that when they were building, now they wouldn't have the sound of tools in, in uh, Solomon's temple in the area where they were constructing it. So they would do the quarrying over here, then they would bring the stones up later. And so they send up the stones. Well, the cornerstone is going to look different than the rest, but it's an important chief stone. You know, it's, this is an important stone in the building and construction of the temple. So the builders get this stone that looks different from the rest, and they get it too early in the building time, and they go, what is this? We don't know what this is. So they roll it downhill. I just, we, we reject it. They just toss it downhill. Later on, when they're finishing the temple, as the story goes, um, they say, uh, send word to the quarry. We need the chief's cornerstone. And the, the quarry goes, yeah, we sent that up to you like forever ago, man. Like, you already had it. What'd you do to it? And they look down the hill, and they go, oh, that stone we rejected, that's the chief cornerstone. And that's the text here in Psalm 118, 22. And it's, we realize in First Peter, it's about Jesus. That this stone, rejected stone about the temple ends up being Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. He was what the whole thing was about. He's what it was all leading up into. It was all about Jesus. But the builders rejected him. The high priests, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the leadership of the time, including the Roman leadership. I mean, he was rejected by many. So this is, this is typology. This is exciting. But if you go back to, to Psalm 118 and you just keep reading, we, we get to a, a passage that you know. You know this passage. In Psalm 118.25, it says, Save us, or save now, or Hosanna. That's the word, Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Pause for a second. got to read the rest of that because it's kind of neat. right? But Jesus shows up, and he is, according to Psalm 118, there is a stone that will be rejected. Jesus shows up, he enters into Jerusalem, and when he enters in on Good Friday, they are crying out, or excuse me, on Palm Sunday, they are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, sin now, success. They're crying out this exact psalm. And what happens? The builders reject him. And then how does verse 27 end in Psalm 118? Bind the festal, or the, the, the sacrifice, the, the feast Sacrifice, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. We have, we have Palm Sunday and Good Friday put together in this Psalm 118. He is the cornerstone. He was sent to you. You rejected him. And now he is put upon this, the altar, the sacrifice. And so he goes to the cross. This is amazing. I am just... I've, I've realized that many people, when they're confronted with the interweaving beauty and majesty of the text of Scripture, that they won't comprehend it um, for whatever reason. <laughs> it just doesn't land. I don't know. But it lands with me. And I hope it lands with you. I am blown away by the beauty and majesty of the text of the Scriptures here. I could sit and just study this one psalm all day. And look at how it was pictured and then fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 
Now, First Peter, the other thing it mentions, so it mentions he's the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected, this passage that does not obviously speak clearly about Messiah, but is a, is a, is a foreshadowing that then becomes clear when Jesus shows up. And then Isaiah 8.14 is the other part, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. It says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, speaking ultimately about Christ. Blows me away. All right, last one. David. Let's talk about David. Okay, there's like eight more. Um, all right, David. Ezekiel 37 verse 24 says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And you might be like, <clears throat> and I'm actually throwing this example out there on purpose. This is a less certain example. Ezekiel 37 24. This is the less clear possible foreshadowing of Christ. Why do I say that? Okay, Ezekiel 37 is written long after David is dead and gone. And we know that, in the, that the house of David and the son of David is the Messiah who is to come. But Ezekiel 37 simply refers to a future righteous ruling king and just calls him David. The two options are that in some future time, David resurrected and his resurrected body actually reigns. And that's quite possible. Maybe he will have some sort of authority and rulership during maybe the millennium or something like that. Um, and the other option is that this is actually just calling Jesus David because he's the son of David, because he inherits this sort of typology that David started, Jesus fulfills. And that may be the case. That may be the case. And there's other supportive passages as well. I do think David is a type of Christ, and I'll, hopefully we'll get into that later on in this same series. So then we have the temple. Okay, this is kind of neat. Um, have you ever heard, raise your hand if you've heard a study where people go through the, the trappings and the design of the temple, the tabernacle, and they talk about how it relates to Christ. Have you guys experienced that before? Okay, we, we may well do that in this series. I think it's kind of a fun and neat thing to do, um, and I do think it relates. But I think it has an actual biblical basis. And John chapter 2, verse 18, I'll start here. John 2.18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you, uh, do you show us for doing these things? They asked Jesus for a sign, and Jesus answered them, here's the sign, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, Jesus knew how they were going to take this statement, right? Destroy this temple? He knows they're going to not understand him. Why on earth does he say this temple? Well, it says, the Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Like, you can't build things that fast. Not even like, you know, there's, there was no 3D printers back then. Verse 21, it says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus purposely and deliberately confuses the identity of the temple and himself. And he says, destroy this temple in three days and I will, or destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Interestingly enough, this is, it's this phrase that really lends towards him getting condemned later on. It's as though he gave them the, the, the ammo. They twisted his words. They said, Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. But that's obviously not what he said and they knew it as well. But they used this to try to twist words to attack him later on when he's in his trial with the, uh, with the Jewish trials he went through. They use this and they twist it and throw it back in his face. <clears throat> so that's, that's okay, just mark that down. There's one time where Jesus deliberately confuses the identity between the temple and himself. 
And then the Bible, the text calls it the temple of his body. Interesting. Then in John 1.14, we have this phrase. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And that word dwelt is literally the same word we use for tabernacled or the tabernacle. And so that some, some translations actually translate it that way. So the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. It's interesting that that word is used there. Very interesting. Um, then when we get to Exodus 29, now this, this may not seem super convincing to you, but there's more. There's more. Just wait. Okay, so Exodus chapter 29, verse 43, it says, There I will meet with the people of Israel. Again, God speaking to his people. And it shall be sanctified by my glory. And what's the there he's talking about? The temple, right? So look at how God describes the temple. It's, it's where God will meet with his people, right? It will be sanctified by his glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Remember when Moses came to God and God says, I'm not going down to you. If I go in your midst, I will destroy you because I'm holy and you're wicked. And so then they made the temple, the tabernacle. This is like God can't dwell with us, but, but this location will be like a way that God can be in our midst, but somehow separate from us. The tabernacle is the Old Testament God with us. That's what it is. It's the Old Testament God with us, right? That's, that's God's dwelling place right there, the tabernacle. Jesus refers to his body as the temple. And then in John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt amongst us. And Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. I think that these are all in t- uh, deliberate and intentional things. And then we have something even stronger confirmation of this in Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20, where it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy, uh, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And now, now you remember when Jesus, the curtain or the veil, we're entering the holy places, the holy of holies, through the veil. This is temple language. This is the tabernacle. There was this thick veil that separated that everyone from that one location, the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died, there was a great earthquake, and that veil tore from top to bottom. Remember reading about that? And then Hebrews says, now, it interprets this event for us, right? We have boldness to enter. We can come right into God's presence. No more separation between man and God. Because that veil was torn, and that veil is his flesh, his body. Now, I put all these things together, and I go, there is definitely a connection between Jesus and the temple. It's very clear. It's very uh, plain in scriptures. And I think that it's okay to then go and look at the temple and say, I wonder what else might be there. I think I have a legitimate biblical reason to do that, which makes Bible study very exciting to me. In Passover, all right, Passover. Let's talk about Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus relates to Passover. It says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb. He's just straight up called the Passover, the Passover lamb. 
He's been sacrificed for us. And Passover, we know, is a Jewish feast. Now, think about the scope for a second, right? We're looking at the forest, not just the trees. Look at the variety of trees in this forest. We have people. We have events. We have sort of riddly phrases in the book of Psalms about like stone rejected, become the cornerstone. We've got the veil in the temple. We have now feasts, the Passover, that are all seen as types and shadows of Christ. What I'm saying is this, like in the scope of your Old Testament, do you realize how much variety of what you have in your Old Testament is being said to relate to Jesus? And this is all directly from the New Testament teaching. This isn't some sort of creative Bible study techniques. You know, this, is, this is just what the text says. Um, so Christ, our Passover lamb, was, has been sacrificed. And then in John one twenty nine, when Jesus shows up, this is kind of confirmed even more because it says in John one twenty nine, the next day he, this is John the baptizer, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's interesting. You know how the shadows are always lesser and Jesus is always greater? The Jewish mind would have known immediately what the Lamb of God is, right? This is either the Passover lamb or some other lambs of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Except none of them, none of them ever made the claim that they would take away the sin of the world. At most, it would do something for Israel as a whole, not the world. Jesus comes and he takes away the sin of the world because he's greater. So again, we see that Old Testament types represent but fall short of Jesus. So as you're looking for types in the Old Testament, again, expect it to fall short. That's kind of the point, right? To create the need and the desire for Jesus Christ. But there's more. So the sin offering is also referencing a a type of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12, we read this. For the bodies of those animals, this is talking about the Old Testament sacrifices, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is talking about specific kind of sacrifice. There's different sacrifices. Have you read, read Leviticus, right? It's orders and different ways that sacrifices are to be done. And this is neat to me. Talk about opening the book of Leviticus to you. It's saying that the particular way in which the sacrifices were to take place pictured Christ. And, and this was the Day of Atonement sacrifice, specifically. The Day of Atonement sacrifice, the animal was slaughtered, the blood was taken, just the blood, and it was brought all the way into the Holy of Holies. The only one time a year when they could even enter into the Holy of Holies. And the blood was offered there before the presence of God on the mercy seat. Right? But the bodies, they were burned outside the camp. Super far away. You can't even, not even burned at the brazen altar, not even burned in the normal location. But for this sacrifice, the body's taken all the way outside the camp. And Hebrews tells us, in the same sense, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Did you know the cross was located on Golgotha, right? It was located on Calvary outside the gates of Jerusalem. So it was brought outside the camp. And so Jesus uh, is related to this. Now, Now, does this mean... Like for the Day of Atonement has specific sacrifices that relate to Jesus in the, in the particulars of how the sacrifice is to be done, the stuff that you have, a, you have a hard time reading in Leviticus. What else might there be in Leviticus in the sacrifices that might relate to Christ? I mean, don't tell me that only the Day of Atonement can be that way. Because, I mean, Passover is that way. 
Day of Atonement's that way. The veil's that way. The temple's that way. Right? The book of Psalms, we got random stuff in the book of Psalms that's that way. I got, I got David, I got Moses, I got Noah, and I got the ark, and I got the flood, and I got... Goodness gracious, how many types are there? And that's the point. I want us to see how big the forest is tonight, because I think it will spark your, um, your desire for more. Then uh, the scripture goes on, and it talks about sacrifices, not just the Day of Atonement, but Hebrews 9.23 talks about just sacrifices in general. And how the general nature of the Old Testament sacrifices was a foreshadowing to reveal something about Christ and how he is greater. Hebrews 9.23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. This is speaking, um, Hebrews 9 speaks about like, like these two temples. One is God's very presence in heaven. And then there's the earthly tabernacle that represents God's presence. You realize that the, the, even the, this is kind of neat stuff, man. But even the temple itself the tabernacle, look at the way it's designed. On the inside, it had like like these heavenly beings sewn into it, heavenly stuff sewn into it. On the outside, it was very earthly. It was meant to say like you're entering sort of into heaven as you come into this place in the presence of God. So it was meant to represent like God's presence in heaven, but it was just a shadow of God's actual presence in a sense, a foreshadowing of it. And so um, that's where it talks about these two different sort of temples or tabernacles or places. So he was 923, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that would be the earthly stuff, the tabernacle, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So when they originally commemorated the tabernacle as well as the temple, they made a bunch of sacrifices. Moses, he like takes the blood and he like gets blood and stuff on everything. Everything sanctified by blood. The, the, the thing is, everything has to be sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how it works. But, because these are just copies of the heavenly things, Hebrews says, of course, God's ultimate sanctification is going to be better than this. So interesting. There's more there in Hebrews 9. You're welcome to read it for yourself. It's great stuff. Um, um, another thing about Jesus is that uh, these sacrifices were offered repeatedly, but Jesus was only offered one time. See how the, 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 they fall short? Jesus fulfills it in a greater sense. Hebrews 5, which we're not going to read tonight, um, but it, it compared Jesus to the priests and the, the high priest as well. The priests, plural, as well as the high priest. And we went into that uh, a little bit previously, so I won't get into it as well. So the priest, the sacrifices, multiple different feast days, um, the temple, the veil, all this stuff relates to Christ. And then the Sabbath. Here's another one in case you thought we ran out. The Sabbath, we're not going to run out, by the way. We're just going to run out of time. Um, in Colossians 2.16, it talks about how the Sabbath somehow relates to Christ, and more than that, actually. So let's read it. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? The, the festivals or new moons, this is talking about the feast days. We already talked about Day of Atonement and Passover. They related to Jesus. I wonder how the others might. Then we have... This statement about the Sabbath. Um, but, but first, let me just point out real quick in verse 17. It says, these are a shadow. This is one of those words we actually use in typological terminology. So they're a shadow. That's why I keep using the phrase foreshadowing. You know, when I was, I was taking a walk last night, and uh, some of my neighbors have those insanely bright um, porch lights. And a couple of them have them not like in, on their porch, but the, these insanely bright porch lights are like sticking at that part of their house that almost comes to the curb. <laughs> so, so as I'm walking by, if those lights are behind me, I notice that my shadow goes way out in front of me. 
That's a foreshadow. And so these foreshadowed Jesus. They're shadows of what? The things to come. Now, if you know someone very well, you can recognize them by their shadow. And so we see Jesus, his shadow in all this stuff. And then he shows up and you go, yep, that was you. We were seeing in the shadow the whole time. So this is not my imagination. This is God's inspired text in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, not the shadow, the substance is of, belongs to Christ or is of Christ. That's New King James already loaded in the brain there. Um, so, Hebrews 4 talks about this as well. We already heard the Sabbath. Somehow, the substance of the Sabbath is Jesus. How is Jesus the substance of the Sabbath? In Hebrews 4, we get a whole bunch of stuff in Hebrews 4 about the Sabbath rest as a theme and how it's um, the Sabbath is incomplete outside of Christ. And we're going to read a bunch of Hebrews 4. So we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Um, Hebrews has already given us this sort of case in the Old Testament that God has promised that you can still enter into his rest, that it's a future thing. Um, verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is Psalm 95, and it deserves me to go to Psalm 95 and explain it all, but I don't have time. So, homework for you. <laughs> I want to focus just on how Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. That's the point at the moment. So, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, that is God, six days he created the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested, because he's done. Not because he's tired. He's done. He's resting. Um, verse 4. For... He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. That is Psalm 95. He tells the people, I'm resting, but you are not entering my rest. There's some future rest for you. You guys didn't get it. But it still is available for us. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying, this is all commentary on Psalm 85, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. He's kind of cutting off someone who will misinterpret the Old Testament. Well, they entered rest. When they entered the promised land, they entered the rest of God. Oh, no, no, because many years later, God says they're not entering his rest. And there's a today, there's a present promise about entering his rest. So how do we enter his rest? Old Testament question mark. New Testament exclamation point in Jesus Christ. So if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever's entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So this is connecting the theme of, this is kind of neat stuff actually, connecting the theme of God's rest, Genesis, with the Sabbath and with the promise of a future rest in Psalm 95. And then verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Christ is the substance. He is the rest. Christ is my Sabbath. He is my Sabbath rest. I rest in him. Jesus says, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Do you think Jesus was thinking about Genesis and Psalm 95? 
he inspired it, okay? Of course he was thinking about all that. So um, let's look at Luke 4.24. I want to look at this um, as one of our last passages for tonight. This is a really neat passage in Luke 24 because here's where Jesus takes a compilation of more than one event, Old Testament events, and he adds them together to show that they were establishing like this repeated pattern that was meant to teach you something about Messiah. This is kind of neat stuff. So, so here, now we have a new kind of typology. It's not, this happened here, that represents Messiah. This happened here, that represents Messiah. Instead, this one is, this happened here, 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 and that pattern became a pattern which also happened with Jesus as he came and, and stepped into the shadow he had been casting. Um, Luke 4.24, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows, and see if you can figure out why he's bringing up these stories, and why do they get mad at him when he does. There were many widows in, the Isra- in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now that is going to make them a, a little bit angry. I'll explain why in just a moment. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, and all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Why are they so mad? Because the widow... And Naaman are Gentiles. And he says there were lots of widows in the days of Elijah, right? But God sent him to a Gentile. Why did God send Elijah to a Gentile woman? There were lots of lepers in the days of Elisha who did many miracles, but why is the only leper he cleansed a Syrian, a Gentile? And rather than think, hmm, maybe God was telling us something, they get angry and their, their national pride rises up, they come against him. Jesus is revealing to us that there's a pattern here that Elijah, Elisha, they're both consistent with. They're received by the Gentiles, but not by Israel. Jesus comes, and who is he received by? Right? Read the book of Acts. It actually carries the course of the gospel going out to the Jews. Some of them got saved, praise God. Many of them rejected. And then we get these events where Paul's like, fine, we're going to go to the Gentiles. You're kicking us out of the synagogue. We'll go to the Gentiles. Right? We have the parable of Jesus who tells about, yeah, go into the highways and byways and invite them all to the wedding if, if these invited don't want to come. Jesus is revealing that Elijah, Elisha, they're like a pattern. Now, that pattern actually gets bigger if you look at other texts of Scripture. David, there was a time when David, already anointed king of Israel, but was rejected by Saul and chased out by the armies of Israel, and he went into the hands and into the lands of the Gentiles, and he was employed and embraced by them. We read about this with Moses. Moses, when he, we can also read this in the book of Acts chapter 7. Acts 7 is your homework if you want more homework. Um, and Stephen's address, and he says, yeah, Moses, like, he comes to the people and he, and he, he uh, avenges one of his brothers who's being beaten and, and by this Egyptian. He slays the Egyptian. And in Acts 7, he says, well, Moses figured his people would recognize, right? I'm here to deliver you. But instead, they tattletale on him and he has to flee. And who is he received by? Jethro, some other people outside some Gentile, 
outside in the in the in the land of Midian, and there he becomes like the shepherd, and he's received, and he's well. And then later he comes back. His second coming, he's received by the Jewish people. Joseph. Joseph, rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, received by Pharaoh and the Gentiles. And they're raised up. Then finally, second time around, he's received by his own family and there to deliver them and help them. There's a pattern here that Jesus follows, or I should say, they are patterned after Jesus. They foreshadowed him as he was coming. This may bring a new meaning to Jesus' statement in, in uh, Matthew 5.17 where he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we often think of him fulfilling the law, but we don't realize he also fulfilled the prophets. And this statement, law and prophets, it was meant to encompass the scriptures. He's like, I've come to fulfill it all. How much is there for us to still learn? How much is there for the scriptures to be open to us as we learn more and more about Christ? Whether it's direct prophecy or thematic elements that represent Jesus, types and shadows, um, this does not, again, it does not replace the simple meaning of the text, but it's to recognize that God has been doing something all along that is finally revealed in Jesus, and we're intended to go back to the Old Testament with that in mind. We're intended to. Um, I hope that this stirs your minds and imaginations and, well, not so much your imagination as your mind. <laughs> we got to be careful, and we want to find what God has already placed in the text. We're not intending to fabricate things. And I think it's good rules for us to be cautious. You may find something you really like. It may or may not be legitimate. Hold on to it loosely if you're not so sure about it. It's okay to be like, maybe this, maybe that, I'm not sure. Um, but we are meant, I believe, to go to the scriptures and view them through the lens of the revelation of Christ. I think we're supposed to do that because the New Testament does that. And it seems to me Jesus does that. And, um, and I, I do think, I mean, I don't know how long you've been, you've been a believer. I've been a believer for a, a couple years now. And and I'm, and I'm kind of shocked as I think, I've heard, I don't know how many thousands of Bible studies. I love listening to Bible studies. I listen to them all the time. And I'm like, I don't remember ever being taught very much about this, actually, when I think about it. And I'm not here to criticize the teachers, right? Like, oh, it's all their fault for not doing it. No, I mean, I got a Bible. I could do my own study. What I'm saying, though, is maybe this is a somewhat neglected section in our understanding of Scripture. And perhaps we're neglecting something that is actually central to the main message of the text when we don't see Jesus throughout its pages. Let's pray. Um, Father God, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for Jesus Christ revealed, and we pray revealed more and more as we study the text of scriptures. We pray, Lord, that you would light a fire in us of passion to know your word better and to see it more clearly and more truly. Uh, We pray for great insights as we see the variety of ways in which the law and the prophets, they speak of him how Moses wrote of him. We want our hearts to burn within us as you open the scriptures to us. So we pray for wisdom, insight, and for us to discover, not not fabricate, but to discover what you have always had there for us. In Jesus' name, amen.